the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions about the Bible, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, questions that you might have sort of running around in your brain about what this means or how you can apply it in your daily life. We'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. Our phone numbers are 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877 KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, use the free KSLR mobile app and you can just hit the call now button and safely be connected to the studio. We'd love to have your questions and calls. Tuesday, there's nothing going on that we need to tell you about, so we'll get right to the questions. Let's go to the phone lines. Daniel calling on line one. Daniel, thanks for calling early. You're on the air. Hey, uh, Pastor Ron. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, I was having a discussion with a friend, and we were talking about uh, in the Old Testament, there was a, I know, I think it was where God, I guess they, the people of Israel, they were not to wear uh, clothing with different material on it. I guess it had to be of one type of material only. It couldn't, like, I guess maybe it couldn't be like the way they make shirts now, or it's cotton polyester or something like that. <laughs> uh, so we were talking, and was there like a, what was the purpose of that? And was there like a spiritual significance that relates to us, or which, and then it leads to my other question is, uh, we're talking about food. Um, when God first created human beings, he told them, you know, to eat, that they could eat from the fruit, you know, the tree or, and whatnot, and, and or the trees that were around. Uh, so at what point was it always okay to eat meat, or did there come a point, or when God originally created human beings, were we supposed to just eat, you know, like uh, fruits and maybe vegetables or, uh, you know, I... I I, I don't know, and, you know, at what point did it become okay or was it okay just to eat, start eating meat from animals? Uh, and I'll take your answer over the radio. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate the call. Especially appreciate you getting in early. Uh, a couple of things. First, the the the, the first. I think if if um, uh, I understood your question correctly, the the reference to a specific type of clothing, uh, it was for the priesthood. It was linen that they were to wear. Linen, linen would be light. It would be breezy. It would be it would wear, and it would set them apart from the 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 people as as sort of the people that spoke to God. Remember, in the priesthood, the responsibility of the priest was to represent God to the people and the people to God. And so it would be important that the Levites knew who or that everybody could identify the Levites. And so the priest
basically closing was linen. Now, I personally think, and this might be stretching things a little bit too far for some of you, but but I personally think, and when I've taught this, um, um, uh, you know, linen is, is it's a wonderful fabric if you've worn it. Uh, I've got a few linen shirts for the summertime, especially. And other than the fact that they wrinkle uh, so easily, it drives me crazy that they're wrinkled. Uh, the, the shirts are light, they're airy, they're comfortable. And uh, I, I've always sort of equated that to the work of ministry being done in the power of God's Spirit. And what I tell my church is, hey, when you're serving Jesus, when you're doing it uh, in His power, ministry's no sweat. You know, sometimes we get questions here on the program about ministry's really hard and all that. It really isn't unless you're doing it yourself, unless you're doing it in your own power. So, um, Again, I think that's a great application for those of us, you know, 2,000 years this side of Jesus. But at the same time, um, uh, it was simply to set the the priesthood apart from, uh, we would call it the laity, they wouldn't call that just the the everyday uh, Israelite in the Old Testament. So that's the only closed distinction that I'm personally aware of. Uh, I could be forgetting, you know, you read all of the laws and requirements, but I think that's what you're referring to, Daniel. Regarding food, you know, uh, after the fall, that's when when, um, um, animals died. Uh, You know, uh, Adam and Eve were naked. They were ashamed. Uh, God said, where art thou, Adam? Where art thou? And he said, I'm over here hiding because we knew that we were naked and we're ashamed of of what we've done. And uh, the next time we see Adam and Eve, they're covered, uh, their private parts are covered with with, um, animal skin. And so the very first death that ever entered the world was an animal. And, and so as not to um, waste the animal, uh, that, that would be when the eating of meat uh, came into, into existence in our culture. Uh, ideally, in a world, the trees, the, the ground produced anything and everything that we needed. We can't even imagine how nutritious and how filled with vitamins, how healthy uh, that which God would produce from the Garden of Eden would have been. Um, but all of that changed. So there's no benefit um, biblically or spiritually to not eating meat. Um, it, it happened as a result of the fall. That's when things began to die. So, Daniel, I hope that helps answer your question. I, for one, am a meat eater, and I'm grateful that God said we could eat meat. I am particularly grateful that he said all food was clean, meaning pork uh, in a Jewish context. Uh, it means I had bacon and love it. Um, so that's when meat, uh, the whole thing of eating meat, would have entered into our creation. So, Daniel, thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from our mobile app from Rich. Um, he says, uh, John addresses his second epistle to the elect lady. To whom is he referring? Um, second John chapter uh, 1, or verse 1, rather. It's the only chapter. Um, second John, verse 1, Paul says, or John says, I'm sorry, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Now, um, Rich commentators have argued for centuries about the identity of this chosen lady. Uh, Some insist that John is referring to the church in general. Um, That would be unusual because it was not uh, normal to refer to the church uh, in the feminine, and this is definitely in the feminine. Um, uh, That would be a complete contrast to John's previous writing style as, as, as identified in his gospel and in the three epistles. Now, in support of this view, that this is the church that he's writing to, would be the use of the term chosen, which would indicate, at least to some, that John was referring to her election as a people of God, uh, predestination according to foreknowledge. If that's so, the construction would be very awkward um, in terms of making the point. Uh, Personally, now, this is only my opinion, and there's as many people who disagree with me as would agree with me, but I think it's improbable that John is referring to the church. Uh, More likely, and this is my own personal view, uh, Rich, I think that John is addressing one particular woman uh, especially. The only difficulty with this is that there's no um, uh, definite article. 
in the Greek, the absence of the definite article, um, which would demand that she be thought of in the singular, uh, and there isn't that demand. Um, now, there's precedent for one person being spoken of in the absence of a definite article, um, but I, again, I personally believe that he was writing to a woman most likely in response to some questions that she had posed to John um, in writing uh, at some earlier time. Now, there's a couple questions that would come up. The first question is, why wouldn't John identify her? Um, I'll suggest three possible reasons. If I'm right, it's a particular woman. Uh, the first is that identifying her could have been dangerous for her to be marked out as a follower of Jesus uh, in the first century uh, would have made this woman a target for, for the enemies of Christ. Um, the second possible reason is that she may he may not have identified her because he knows who she is and she knows who she is. So in other words, uh, she asked the question and there was no need. I often will use uh, illustrations in my, my teaching and I will use uh, somebody as an example and, and most of the time I don't identify who that person is. Um, because there's no need to do it and probably that was the case. So that's the the uh, the two possibilities. The third possibility, and and this is what I believe is is the obvious explanation. Um, we need to remember that John was writing only as the Holy Spirit led him to. That's what God breathed means. Uh, the Spirit of God pushing the pins of men. That would simply mean that God didn't want her identified. Um, once this letter was taken into the canon of Scripture, there was uh, a purpose in her not being identified for all of us, uh, because when we read this passage of Scripture, we then can understand that we are the chosen lady. So uh, I always favor personalizing it, and I think that's, um, at least in my view, uh, what it is. So, Rich, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions uh, from our mobile app. This is from Kirby. Uh, Revelation 13, 18, what is the significance of the number 666? Is it Satan's number or that of man? Um, you know, nobody knows, Kirby, what the what the 666 is. Um, it, it says it requires wisdom. Evidently, we don't have any. Um, it's the number of man. Six is the number of man. And I think 666, like three sixes, um, the Trinity, the fullness of the Godhead, its Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think this is just a reference to uh, Satan in all of his counterfeit fullness. But um, it's number 666. It's the number of, of the devil, um, the number of the Antichrist, the number of all things that oppose Lord. I don't think we have to attach any uh, special uh, superstitious fear of it. Uh, but at the same time, it's something that um, that we won't really know. Uh, and people have tried to figure it out. Their whole books are written on it. Truth is, nobody knows what 666 means or what it is. So I hope that answers your question. Here is a question that comes from or comes in anonymous. Um, he or she says, how do you develop men? I would assume it's a he. How do you develop men in your church to help you? And how much of the work do you do yourself? Uh, anonymous, I, I don't do anything. Um, God is so generous with talent, uh, with, with giving gifts of the Spirit. I, I honestly don't do anything. Pastor Ken, who you hear on this radio program from time to time, uh, he, he more runs the place than I do. Now, he runs it for me. Um, but, but uh, you know, it's not like he's doing the best he can. He's running it the way that, that he thinks I would run it if I were here. And um, so I, I get all kinds of help. Uh, I'm not a micromanager. Uh, so uh, I want God to use the gifts of the spirit that he's given to each of these men to do what they do. We just give them sort of a, 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 some confines, some healthy confines with which to work. Um, so I, I, I study, I am in the Word, I'm, I'm preparing Bible studies, uh, preparing for this radio program, uh, I do a lot of counseling. So the rest of the work around the church is done uh, by people far more capable than I am. With regard to how do you develop men in your church, um, I think Anonymous, uh, uh, this is probably the most fruitful thing that we've ever done for at least now 18 of our our 22 years. Paula would probably say closer to 19 or 20 years. Um, we've had what I call a pastor's discipleship class. 
uh, we've known from the very beginning that one of the things that God wanted to do in this church was to uh, to plant churches from it. And to do that, you need to raise up men who will be pastors of churches. We've planted, I think, uh, and I lose track, so don't hold me to this, but I think we've planted 26 churches uh, out of uh, our church, Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. And uh, every one of those men has come out of this pastor's discipleship class. In addition to that, I have elders um, here who uh, they have all come out of the pastor's discipleship class uh, at the beginning. Uh, And then all of the men on my staff who are pastors, and I think we have, including me, eight pastors, um, they've all come out of that pastor's discipleship class. We do it every other Saturday from 10.30 to 12.30. As long as I'm in town, that's what we do. Uh, it started out with just men, and then uh, Paula and some of the ladies said, well, can we come too? So we, husbands and wives would come. And now there's probably a group every other Saturday of 70 or 75 uh, men and women. Um, and it's just two hours of pretty hardcore, direct uh, discussion of everything, discussion of doctrine, discussion of issues, uh, discussion of uh, church government, discussion of what makes us uh, a Calvary Chapel, those kind of things. We want to um, um, really, really develop time, spending time um, preparing them for whatever God calls them to do. The only thing I ask people to do anonymous uh, when they come to this class is they, they have to be committed to serving. This isn't a, a place where you just come and sit and, and, and get fed. They can be committed to serving. These are my hands, my arms, my ears, they're my heart out there. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Friday, I've got these people who are always out there and they're ministering to the people that come in here. The lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused. They're the ones who uh, are responsible if somebody is 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 not familiar to them they go out and introduce themselves to them we want them to get involved in the body life here in the church uh, and these men and women uh, do that so wonderfully and again this is the most fruitful ministry in my view that we've had here at Calvary Chapel uh, because the quality and commitment level of these men and women is exceptional and I can trust them I know them. I can trust them when we close our Friday night services. They're the ones who spread out in front of the church so that people can come forward for prayer. And and, and these, are, these are the men and women who who represent me. So uh, that's how I've developed men. It's, again, two hours every other Saturday. Um, and we've been doing it for a long, long time. And I couldn't be more pleased with the depth of... of, of commitment, the depth of quality, uh, these men and women, their heart for the Lord, and really after all of these years, uh, it's just family. And um, so, so I hope that answers your question. I, I don't have a one-on-one discipleship program. I, you know, who has time for that kind of thing? Uh, but, but really developing men. If you are asking because you're, um, you feel called to to be a pastor, uh, there's nothing more important than you can that you can do than to recreate you. That's really important. God's going to give you the vision for the church. He's going to give you direction. And you've got to develop men who are going to be like-minded and like-hearted. And if you do that, God will be really pleased. Now, there's a painful side of this. The painful side is when you raise up 26 wonderful men and then they go out to start a church, you miss them. You you, you become so committed to and connected to the fam- their families. And then they got to go out, and then you watch them struggle. And it's hard to watch them struggle. It's like sending your kids out, and you, you watch them struggle. Uh, but the good side is there's so much fruit. You know, we have limited space here at Calvary Chapel, and we can't fit anybody else in this building. And um, um, so God has chosen to expand our church. Uh, by virtue of sending other people out. We've got people in all kinds of different states and different countries, uh, a whole bunch of them right here in Texas, South Texas in particular, uh, three or four others here in San Antonio. Um, and and, and we, we delight in, in what God is doing in them and through them. And then, of course, God's given us the opportunity with this radio program to expand um, uh, our reach as well uh, because the number of people that listen to this radio show every day, um, you know, we couldn't buy a building big enough to fit those people in. So I hope that answers your question. I hope I didn't rattle on too long. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Larry. 
He says, do you believe that demon possession is responsible for many of what is now called mental illness? Uh, Larry, I don't think for, for many, or I would use the word much of what's called mental illness, but, but I think for sure that there's a whole bunch of, of misdiagnosis. I, I do believe that in mental institutions, uh, among the homeless, uh, I think, as I've said before in this program, in nursing homes, uh, there is a whole lot of demon possession. Uh, we have encountered it personally. Um, uh, and, and of course, the, the medical world, uh, world of psychology and psychiatry, uh, they kind of just poo-poo us when we say that. But we have seen repeated incidents of demon possession. So uh, I think you're on to something, but, but I don't think we can broad brush it. Mental illness is as genuine, as real, as physical illness. Um, brains are, are, are parts of our body that, that are supposed to function a certain way, and if they break, they're broken. Uh, so uh, I think we have to be really, really careful uh, painting with too broad a brush. Uh, let me say this about mental illness. Um, I believe that the Word of God is capable of dealing with anything and everything that the human condition goes through. Uh, the problem with dealing with mental illness in the church is that we don't have uh, access to to sometimes very much needed medication. Uh, we don't have a background or an expertise. So when uh, we think we're dealing with mental illness, we want people to go to a doctor uh, first for a physical checkup. Then we want them to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist because we want to rule out things. Um, demons often will not manifest themselves just because you ask them. Um, uh, demons are liars, and so it's, it's, it's really beyond our ability sometimes to understand. Now, when somebody goes from our church or, or somebody that we refer to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, the first thing they do is prescribe meds, especially a psychiatrist. That's the very first thing that they do, and often they do it just with a very cursory um, um, examination. Uh, and, and what I always want to do is get the people back here so that we can really kind of pray through this and find out uh, what God wants to do in this kind of thing. So I'm not a, a proponent of meds um, uh, unless they're absolutely necessary. And having said that, I want to make it really clear that if somebody is experiencing uh, mental illness of any sort, whether it's um, something very severe like schizophrenia or something that is less severe but still very problematic like uh, being bipolar, uh, we used to call it manic depression, um, uh, th there's meds that will help. And as a Christian, we're responsible to take those meds. We don't like the feeling of the meds. We don't like uh, the, the impact. But at the same time, uh, we are responsible to be light. And whatever we have to do to be light, to, to function uh, in, in, in a way that will honor the Lord, then we have to do that. So, Larry, just be careful with broad brushing. But, yes, I do believe that demon possession is responsible for a lot of what is diagnosed as mental illness. Uh, I think that's true not only in the places that I said before, but I would also add jails and prisons as well. Thank you very much for the question, Larry. Here is a question from Hal. He says, Pastor Ron, is there a way to tell how old the earth is by going through the Genesis genealogies? Um, no, Hal, not precisely. Um, you know, when you go through all the begats, um, he begat this person, begat this person, there's sometimes uh, entire uh, um, generations uh, that are passed over. You might skip um, the father of, and, and it might be three generations um, later. Uh, so we don't really know for sure, and we don't have any way to, with authority, uh, fill in those, the, the gaps in the genealogies. However, I can say this. Now, I, I, I'm a super, super strong proponent of this, uh, and I often get criticized because I am, um, but I don't care. Uh, I think even if we, we were very generous in filling in those gaps, I don't see an earth that is older than 10,000 years. I think if we say 6,000, we're being too strict and, and, and we're, we're not reading the genealogies properly. But, but I think if we say somewhere between six and 10,000 years old, um, uh, the, the world laughs at us and mocks us. But I really believe with all of my heart that this is a young earth 
um, perhaps made to look old, perhaps there's flaws in the carbon dating processes, um, flaws in the sense that they start with the wrong um, uh, premise, the foundation is shaky, uh, but, but I really believe with all of my heart that the age of the earth is, is, is no more than 10,000 years old, and I think when you understand that and you believe that, um, uh, and there's great, great, great scientific evidence out there that would suggest very strongly that somebody like me who is not a scientist uh, could point to. Um, um, I think how when you understand that, um, the Old Testament from the very beginning, in the beginning God, comes to life. And we need to understand that Genesis is to be taken literally. It's not an allegory. It's not uh, written to symbolize other things. It's not meant to be messed with. The day is not uh, anything other than uh, the evening and the morning of uh, the first day. That was the way Jews rendered a day. The evening is, is first, then, then the morning, day one. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, goes out of his way to signify a 24-hour day and six days of creation um, uh, I know some see a huge gap in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 uh, but they see it because they want to see it they see it because they're trying to accommodate the theory of evolution that's been crammed down our throats uh, and because frankly you go to university and it's sort of humbling to be mocked because you believe in a young earth uh, I, I don't think we should have a problem with being mocked like making fun of Jesus um, they'll make fun of those of us who believe him but we alone carry the message literal interpretation of Genesis, I believe, is essential. Hey, you can hear the music. We've got 30 minutes left to go in today's program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the last 30 minutes of the tuesday edition of the program uh 340-9585 we have a question that just came in from our email inbox from leah uh, Pastor Ron, last night I attended an amazing concert where we experienced a powerful time of worship together with other believers. God's presence was so strong in that place, and it was such a blessing for me as a mom who feels like she doesn't always have time to stop and truly be in his presence. My problem started when the speaker came up. I immediately felt like he was being a little over the top, and I couldn't help feeling that way. When he started talking, the uneasiness only grew. As he spoke, it really felt like he was preaching a hyper-grace message. He literally said through grace, the law would become obsolete. I immediately prayed that his words would be correctly interpreted to those who are listening. I know why the law is so important, but by chance, if anyone who was there last night is listening, could you explain the significance of the law and how it relates to grace and us under the new covenant? Um, Leah, a couple things. Um, a lot of times with worship, uh, and, and I know the, the concert that you're referencing, I know the people behind the concert. Uh, they're 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 wonderfully gifted, wonderfully talented. Uh, emotions are manipulated, and and we we get goosebumps and we 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 fall into worship because our hearts are right with God. Sometimes when we are manipulated into that place, but God is always in that place. To say God's presence was so strong in that place is more a commentary on the emotion in that place, the expectation of the people. Um, God's presence is is wherever, whenever his people are gathered. Wherever two or more are gathered, I am there with them. And I think we have to be really, really careful not to be manipulated by um, a mood, by uh, uh, repetition. Songs, worship songs uh, are often a chorus are long and they keep going and going and going and we can actually fall into sort of an altered state of consciousness without even being aware of it. Again, I'm grateful that you had time to be in God's presence. But here's the problem that I have and it's the same problem you have. Uh, if God was really in that place in a sense that this was his venue, it was his ministry, 
uh, there wouldn't be uh, that kind of uneasiness, uh, that kind of tension between what the Word of God teaches and what the speaker is saying. Um, you know, many, 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 many false teaching churches have great worship, powerful choirs. They know how to manipulate the people. Um, some of the names that I won't bother giving over the air, the names that we would all be familiar with, if you've been in those places, uh, um, the, the, the audiences are manipulated with such power. And and most often it's not the Spirit of God. It's just the, the this mood manipulation uh, in the place. So we have to be really, really careful. Uh, because I know who they are, and I won't say that on the air either, um, you, you had the right vibe in terms of thinking it was hyper-grace. It is, and hyper-grace is that that uh, doctrine, that false doctrine, but it's a doctrine that says because of grace we can do whatever we want. God understands our weaknesses and everything is forgiven. Now the law is very important to us. Now it's true that the law is, and I won't use the word obsolete because it's God's word and it never is obsolete, but the law has been put to death in the sense that Jesus established a new covenant. But here's what we have to understand. If you look at the New Testament do's and don'ts, they're much stricter than the Old Testament law was. You take Ten Commandments, they're very general, but, but, but you go into the, the book of Romans, for example, from chapter 12 forward, the book of Ephesians from chapter 4 forward, the book of Colossians from chapter 3 forward. When you go into those books and Paul tells us how to live, he's telling us basically what the law said. In fact, of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. So the fact that Jesus gave us a new covenant doesn't mean that we don't have to do things. And hypergrace teaching is, you, know, you can kind of do what you feel. Um, you know, Paul says, and we've been in Romans for a long time here at Calvary Chapel, uh, what shall we say then? If the law has been rendered ineffective, shall we go on sinning? And then the response of the King James is, God forbid. The NIV says, by no means. So the law has a very, very important place um, in, in our hearts, but it's a new law. It's the law of love. Uh, in my study just this past Sunday, um, uh, it's the law of life in the Spirit, uh, given by the Spirit of life, a great name for the Holy Spirit. The idea here is that because of grace, somehow we're less accountable than people who are under law. And that's not possible. So it's very, very important that we understand that God's Word needs to be studied, it needs to be understood, and then it needs to be lived. And the hyper-grace crowd would say that's not the case. Now, the church that put this on is a church that is is, is uh, famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, uh, for um, crazy, crazy so-called miracles that aren't miracles at all, angel feathers, people's fillings being replaced uh, with gold, um, people falling down and having these experiences and experiencing visions of God and those kind of things. And it's just a really, really horrible church. It's, it's just a horrible church, but it's effective, it's popular, it's packed, and it has a national platform. So uh, we have to be careful. We measure the validity of the ministry not by the music, not by the mood or the manipulation, but instead by the delivered word. And what you had happen uh, in, in your experience here was nothing more than than discernment, the Spirit of God living in you. That was discernment kicking up uh, in your midst. So I hope that answers your question. And I'm actually really, really happy that you had that discernment check. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Harold calling on line one. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Sure. Hi, Pastor Ron. Yeah, um, I know there's, well, I know now that there's nine commandments in the New Testament. Uh, but one that sticks out to me is when Jesus says, do you remember where you're supposed to love thy neighbor? And then I wonder what was happening at the time when he says, but surely I tell you, you must love one another as your neighbor. And I thought that made it a little more personal instead of maybe looking at a house, I'm not putting down any religions or anything, you know, but I'm just saying, Maybe it was different back in the maybe ancient times where that was a more modern era for that time 
for him to say, you know, we need to love one another. I think it made it more personal, and I seem to like it. But that's all yeah, I'm sure with you since you mentioned that. Yeah, thank think. you, Harold. Okay, right. thank you. And you did, and, and you, you understood correctly. He, he made it very personal. Now, I think what we have to understand uh, about Jesus' ministry, if we, if we miss the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry, then we can't properly uh, understand the message. Uh, Jesus was a Jew under law. We know he fulfilled the law perfectly. He did that because we could not. But he was also ministering to people who were under the law. And necessarily, his emphasis was on the law and the inadequacy of the law. And what he did in the Sermon on the Mount, Harold, and this is important for all of us, starting with Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes and the other Gospels uh, have, have uh, a companion um, stories. Um, what he did was raise the stakes. And that's what he's saying to the Jews, the Jewish leaders. He's saying to the Jewish audience that he had, uh, you have heard that it was said, and then he would give some law, but I say unto you. So not only was he raising the stakes, but he was, he was making it impossible. The law we can't keep physically, but Jesus was saying, even if you could, that's not enough, because I'm telling you to get to heaven without me, you have to keep the spirit of the law. And the whole point was to get people to the place where they'd fall on their face and say, we can't do this. Instead, they insisted that they were keeping the law. You remember the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and saying, uh, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus gave him the, the first table of the commandments. And uh, 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 I'm sorry, the second table of the commandments. And he said, uh, all these I've done from my youth. And then um, Jesus said, well, there's one thing that you're still lacking. The point is they didn't get it. They didn't get it. So often we as Christians, we don't get it either. So here's what we've got to understand. Jesus was raising the stakes. What is the greatest law, he was asked. This always cracks me up because when Jesus answered, the guy said, Good answer, Jesus. And he said, All of the commandments can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, it's literally before yourself, on these two commandments hang all of the law. So he was really, really raising the stakes, and as you noted, Harold, he was personalizing it. It's very important because we've got to understand how personal it is. If we are professing Christians, and I'll just use this example because we live in a very troubled time and we've been going through this uh, in, in our news. Uh, and, and there are expressions of racism. Um, if we carry prejudices, if we're holding on to unforgiveness, um, we're in violation of all of those things. We're, we're not accepting the personal responsibility for those of us who belong to him to do what he tells us to do. And it's important that we take that personal responsibility. He's not talking in the New Testament to other people. He's talking to you. That's why the Word is living and active. So when we read our Bibles, our response to grace should be infinitely greater than anybody's response to law. When we read our Bibles, we've got to read it. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. But here's what God is asking me to do. How do we put it into action? And it doesn't get any more personal than that, Harold. And, and when we neglect to do that, then we're, we're missing the whole point. Jesus came to save the lost. He didn't come to make the good better. He came to save the lost. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585. Here's a question from Iran. He says, Pastor Iran, I personally think Apollos wrote Hebrews. Who do you think wrote it? Uh, Ron, I'm personally convinced that um, Paul wrote it. Um, I think when you read Hebrews a hundred times, and I'm not being flippant, I've read it at least that many times. Uh, I think when you really get into Paul's heart and you know him by virtue of, of the stories in the book of Acts and the epistles that he's written, I think the message in Hebrews, though much more Jewish than, than his other epistles, uh, it, it's the same message. It's the same message, and, and, and the language is uh, a little more refined, but it's the same. Now, uh, there are people who agree with you that Apollos wrote Hebrews. Uh, we know that Apollos was a, a preacher. He was fiery and passionate, but he was also very skilled. Uh, he would have had the, the linguistic 
gift, the, the ability to, to write something as complicated as Hebrews. There are others who think that Barnabas wrote Hebrews. There's no uh, way to, 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 no evidence that would suggest either Apollos or uh, Barnabas wrote Hebrews. There's some who even think that, that Silvanus or Silas wrote Hebrews. Um, but I, I just see nothing but Pauline uh, in, the, in the, the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, it just reeks of Paul's heart to me. And so that's what I personally think. Um, my opinion, your opinion, probably about worth the same. So um, what I would challenge anybody to do when they're trying to come up with, with an author, and it's, by the way, it's one of the reasons that Hebrews was late to be accepted in the canon of Scripture, because it didn't have apostolic identification. Uh, I, I always say, read it 20 times and tell me what you think. Straight through 20 times. Not not all at one sitting, of course, but read it straight through. Read it read it straight through 20 straight days. 20 straight days. And I think what you'll do is you'll, you'll become convinced that it's just very much like Galatians, it's very much like Colossians, it's very much like Ephesians, it's very much in style like Philippians. So that's what I think. Here's a question from Greg. Well, this is another question about me. Let me go to another question. I don't want to do another question about me. Here's John. Do you believe it is ever right for a Christian to publicly protest, for example, as a response to the white supremacist rallies in the news? John, you have a right as an American citizen. Um, But remember, this isn't our kingdom. And I think when we protest in um, response to something that's detestable, I think we have the tendency to forget that those are people that God loves and that he died for. I also think, John, that it's, it's important for us to remember that when we get a crowd, we need to be telling people about Jesus. I, I think sometimes when we, we talk about things like protests or Christians standing up for their rights, I think we have a tendency to expect the unbelieving world to act like they're saved, and they're never going to do that. Why would anybody in this listening audience ever be surprised that there's white supremacists or Nazis um, or anti-Semites? Why would anybody be surprised? There's always been anti-Semites. There's always been hatred and racism. And there's always going to be. So what really are we protesting when in fact we realize that the reason people are lost in those things is because they don't have Jesus. They don't know Jesus. And it's easy to make an enemy of people that Jesus died for. It's easy to hate and dismiss somebody with such an aberrant and horrific point of view. But Jesus loved them. And we have to remember that. So personally, I don't see any benefit from protesting. I don't think as Christians, we need not to make statements against racism and bigotry, what we need to do is tell people about Jesus, tell bigots and racists about Jesus, because Jesus is the only one that can change a human heart. So I personally would never involve myself in something like that. At the same time, I've been given a microphone and a pulpit uh, where I get to deal with these issues all the time. So it's not like I'm not doing anything about it. But there just seems to be no value to shouting at people in the streets. There seems to be no value in in, in getting involved in a, in a physical situation like that. Uh, I think we need to stand there and pray. We need to go talk to individuals, tell them about Jesus, and uh, pray for their very souls, because they are really, really lost. Now, having answered that way, I want it to be crystal clear to anybody listening to this program today that racism is a vile sin. Um, Anybody who can look at any race and say that we are better than another race is the most confused of people. Anybody who can make sweeping generalizations about groups of people is sinning against God who created those people in His image. And what we need to do is love them. And i got to tell you, sometimes it's hard to love people. And Jesus asks us to do it anyway. Can you imagine what it would have taken for a mere man? And Jesus was not a mere man, to be sure. But can you imagine what it would have taken for a mere man to say, Father, forgive them, 
but they don't know what they do after they've broken his back open and beat his face without mercy, if they've spit in his face and mocked him and hammered nails into his hands and feet. We need to love those people. We can hate what they do. But when our hating what they do cripples us to the point that we can't love them, then God's not talking to you about them. He's talking to you about you. We need to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and let Him convict us so that we can repent and get right with God. So, John, that's the best I can do with that question. 340-9585, how are we doing on time? Okay, uh, here is a question from um, Kelly, Second Thessalonians 2. Uh, he or she says, what is the falling away or the apostasy referred to in Second Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3? Let me read it and then I will, I will answer your question, Kelly. Um, Paul says there, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Um, First, let me say this, Kelly. Whenever you hear see a reference to the day of the Lord, or in this case, that day, it's always a reference to Jesus, the second coming to the earth in power. When Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, it splits. He destroys his enemy with his word. You and I, we will be with him. We're coming back for that moment with him. And that day always means that. So this isn't at at all uh, a reference to the rapture, that day. The rapture of the church is going to come at the beginning, before this man of lawlessness is revealed, and before the falling away comes. So the the order of things to come, eschatology-wise, is that the church is going to be raptured. That's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. And by the way, we're all still here on the 24th, aren't we? Or today's the 22nd. And all the Christian extremism about yesterday, the day the world's going to end, the church is going to be raptured, God's going to deal with sin, the world still looks pretty much like it did before, the field is white, or the harvest is, is ripe to be, to be harvested, the, the, the people that are out there. Um, back to the question, Kelly. Um, the rapture of the church is going to happen. Then the great falling away will come. And then the man of sin, we call him the Antichrist, will be revealed. Um, that's the order. Now, the apostasy, one translation says, of the falling away in the New King James, um, it, nobody knows for sure exactly what that means, but uh, I favor the, the interpretation of apostasy in the sense that uh, it's consistent with what Paul wrote to Second Timothy in the, in the last days, there will be terrible or perilous times. Um, uh, a falling away from godliness, a falling away from from doctrine. You know, we see this happening right now, Kelly, in 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 many professing churches, uh, professing Christian churches, embracing gay marriage, embracing uh, even affirming homosexual behavior. Uh, it's no big deal. The hyper grace crowd that answered a question about earlier. The hyper grace crowd will say, you know, God knows I'm a sexual person, and and we love each other, so it's okay. It's when men and women are making their own rules and ignoring what God has told us to do. That's the falling away. A time when men will no longer endure sound doctrine, but instead, Paul says, will want their itching ears tickled. We want to hear good news, even if it's fake news, which means it's not good news. But we can go a long way on false hope. The falling away, this great apostasy, I believe with all my heart we've already begun to see sort of the move in that direction, which would indicate that the time is near. And I've believed it my whole life as a Christian. Uh, I want to live every minute like Jesus could come. Uh, One of the reasons I get so upset with those false teachers who are saying that yesterday because of the signs in the stars or earlier uh, in the year, the blood moons are going to come and that's going to be a harbinger of Jesus coming. Um, All of that's false news. And Jesus said, I come at a time when you think not. So whenever people start thinking this one's going to happen, well, that's not going to happen. So what we need to do is be looking for the Lord. And then the falling away that's already begun will be complete, leading to the revelation of who the Antichrist is. We will not be here for either of those things. And of course, then uh, seven years, uh, once the Great Tribulation starts, 
seven years later, uh, that's when Jesus will return. That's the day of the Lord. So, Kelly, that's really what uh, what is being spoken of here. Three four zero. Do I need time for calls? Three four. Okay, no calls. Let me see. I hate saying no calls. Love your calls tomorrow. Um, here's a question. We got two minutes. Here's a question that I can answer from Wayne. Wayne says, "Does Acts sixteen thirty one guarantee that my family will be saved because I am?" Uh, I hear Christians saying that all the time, but I thought everyone had to believe on their own. Uh, Wayne, you're right. It doesn't mean that at all, and that's not only shoddy um, um, exposition, uh, but it's dangerous exposition. You know, often in in Pentecostal, really highly crazy charismatic churches, uh, they'll quote this, well, see, I'm saved, so my family's... We all want to think our family's going to heaven. But the only way to go to heaven is to believe individually in Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 16, it it says that. Um, What must I do to be saved? Believe, and you will be saved. Now, there's two possibilities. You and your whole family will be saved. Two possibilities. One, Paul was speaking prophetically to him, knowing a word of knowledge from God what was going to happen. But if you go to the, the, a little bit later in that chapter, it makes it clear that they all heard the word of God and they all believed and were saved. So it wasn't that the father could be uh, saved and his wife has to be saved against her uh, objections or the kids have to be saved. There's no guarantee that because you're saved, anybody else is going to be saved. Two things can happen. One, you can pray for them. And you can show your family how good your Jesus really is by living a life filled with the joy of the Lord. That is what the Holy Spirit will use to save them. But Acts 1631 makes no such promise, Wayne. Thank you for the question. You hear the music. We're out of time for the day. Uh, you've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I am delighted to be here with you every day at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing. See you at 4. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.